Hi. Good morning. I'm grateful to be here with you all on this second Sunday of Advent. If we haven't met yet, my name is Blythe. And this morning, we are going to continue in the lectionary texts of this Advent season, asking the scriptures what they have for us as a people who wait. Alexia read two of the four lectionary texts assigned to this Sunday, one psalm and one gospel reading. We actually won't spend much time in either of those today, though. Um, but their presence is very much felt in the other, the third lectionary text that we're looking at today. So today we're looking at a text from Isaiah 11. And these verses in Isaiah, they share a lot of crossover hope with the psalm that Alexia read. Uh, I'm not sure how much you caught of the scripture reading, uh, but Isaiah 11 articulates a very similar desire and expectancy for that good, just ruler that Psalm 72 longs for. So I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10, on page 481 of your chair Bibles. And before I read, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have the words of life. Just ask that you would speak to us individually and as a community through Isaiah today. Amen. So Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. It's the word of the Lord. I love the picture that these verses paint, especially that opening line, this new tiny life bursting forth from a stump, a tree that was thought to be mostly dead. Did you notice the trajectory in these verses? What starts out as barely visible in verse 1, a green sprig, the tiniest sign of any work, grows to fill every corner of the earth by verse 9. 
there's a poem I really like by Walt Whitman, which says, the smallest sprout shows there really is no death. And if ever there was, it led forward life and does not wait at the end to arrest it. Here in chapter 11, Isaiah affirms that. He was a, a big Whitman fan. Death here doesn't get the final say. It doesn't wait at the end with victory. It's simply the earliest, but of course the hardest, sign of resurrection. And from this tiny, humble resurrection, a good and just ruler enters the world. And his justice seeps into every creaturely relationship. Isaiah's giving us a picture of God's radical reordering peace. So this morning, I would like us to hold this question together. What's our personal encounter with these words of Isaiah, both in our lives, but also in the life of our community? If the vision Isaiah offers seems impossible, that's fair. We live in a world with pain, and I think we often ache for a world like the one Isaiah describes, a world of deep peace, but perhaps struggle to reconcile that ache with this life, which is marked with loss and struggle. And that's why I want you to know that Isaiah's verses were born in struggle. If we read the chapter that comes before these verses, which we won't because I am very much working on the spiritual discipline of not giving you 45-minute sermons, but if we were to go there, we'd see that Israel is struggling in Isaiah 10 with the superpowers of her time. The mighty empire of Assyria is a very real threat, one that will crush Israel with its military and political power. So before Isaiah gets to the hope of tiny green shoots in chapter 11, he describes Israel's devastation in chapter 10. He likens this devastation to a deforestation, saying, the lofty trees will be felled, the tall ones will be brought low. That's why we have a stump here in Isaiah 11. It's because the forest, especially its tall parts, has been cut down. With this metaphor, Isaiah shows the failure of Israel, the devastation of its people. And while Isaiah is writing this, the nation is on the eve of being erased. And yet, from this near erasure, a shoot blooms. It's significant that the shoot blooms from Jesse's stump. You might know Jesse is the father of King David, uh, the David who is one of Israel's earliest and most significant rulers. So Jesse here represents Israel's monarchy, the line of Jesse and David and those kings who come after them. The context here then is the deep failure of this Davidic dynasty, a dynasty that Israel put a lot of hope in. But this dynasty couldn't shelter Israel from the superpowers and eventually Israel was conquered and exiled. And in this, all hope in God's saving power gets called into question. So that's the picture Isaiah paints for us in chapter 10, one that's bleak and pretty devastating and raises a lot of good questions like, why, God, and where were you, God? And yet, when these worldly systems fail, when life feels bleak, that's when Isaiah asserts this new life, a sprout, a faint and perhaps surprising sign of possibility. 
Isaiah's initial readers, the people of Israel, would have interpreted Isaiah 11 messianically, thinking that God was promising this perfect king, a political ruler, a descendant of David who would govern them flawlessly, raising Israel up from the shadow of neighboring power. Theoretically, all Israel's kings were supposed to be these divinely appointed rulers, ones who would intervene on behalf of the poor and vulnerable. And this belief or hope is articulated really well in the psalm that Alexia read, Psalm 72, which says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, and may he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. The ideal for this coming king was one of justice. We know that king never came, at least not in that form. But when Christ's first followers encounter him, they get this overwhelming sense of, oh, this is the one our prophet spoke of. And I think that's such a neat picture of the living nature of scripture. God spoke to Christ's earliest followers through Isaiah's words in surprising new ways, revealing a completely unexpected turn in the application of this text. Like Christ's early followers, of course, we see Jesus in this text, the one on whom the Spirit rests, empowering him to rule justly, to right wrongs, and to bring peace in a way that the world, with all its strife, suggests is impossible. Though Isaiah's words are very much born in a specific context, they also contain seeds of Christ in them. Christ, the long-hoped-for Prince of Peace, as Isaiah calls him elsewhere. And because they contain Christ, they can live and breathe and speak to us today. Each week in Advent, as we wait, we light a candle to make the longing of this season tangible. And today, with other churches all around the world, we light the peace candle, or rather, we lit the peace candle. And in lighting this candle, we express our longing for God's peace, for his restorative hand to fill our lives and to fill this whole earth, both of which, our lives and our earth, can often feel quite absent of peace. I really like how Dante Stewart describes peace. Uh, for Stewart, like Isaiah, peace and justice are entangled. You can't separate them. And so in his Advent devotional, which Lance pointed us to last week, uh, yeah, it's up there in the slides, the cover of it. Um, in his Advent devotional, Stuart challenges what he calls false peace. False peace is just peace without justice. Stuart writes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He invites us out of our false peace into true peace. Loving God, loving self, loving neighbor. He does not rule like the rulers of our day. He rules with justice and righteousness, mercy and grace, love and liberty, freedom and joy. To the weary and wounded, he says, come. To the broken and bruised, he says, welcome home. And to those under the weight of oppression, he says, I will come down and rescue. Stuart uses the good words of Martin Luther King Jr. to explain this idea of false peace further. King writes, true peace is not merely the absence 
of some negative force, the absence of tension, confusion, or war. Rather, it is the presence of some positive force, the presence of justice, goodwill, and brotherhood. I love that. Peace as presence, the presence of the kingdom. Such a good definition. And something our lives desperately need. A very real and active peace that transforms all those negative forces that King named into something more whole. One of the perks of uh, being married to Matt Kingcroft is that I get to go see a lot of movies, a lot of movies in theaters. Um, and I, I like that. I like going to movies as well. <laughs> uh, there's a commercial playing in Cineplex theaters right now that I've seen a lot this fall. I tried to find it for us. I wanted to show it to you, but it can't be found online. I wanted to show it because I think it depicts a, a kind of false peace. In this commercial, Christmas peace, the peace of Christmas is just the absence of noise, maybe the absence of mess. If you've seen a movie in theaters recently, you might actually know the commercial that I'm talking about. Uh, but if not, I'll set the scene. So imagine it's Christmas morning on the screen, probably, I don't know, 10 a.m. or so. A family is nice and cozied in their living room, right next to their sort of Martha Stewart-esque tree. Presents have been opened, uh, the, gifts, the gift opening is done, but there's not a speck of mess or like crumpled up wrapping paper in sight. Instead, the grandfather is reading quietly, the mother brings everyone tea and cookies, and two kids, probably eight or nine years old, are still in their pajamas, quietly and so politely playing chess. I, I think it's chess <laughs> with each other. These children are just peace, peacefully moving their bishops and rooks with these sort of vaguely serene smiles on their faces, like rook to be three, little brother, all is well. This ad is bonkers. <laughs> Um, not just because Christmas with children looks nothing like this, or at least Christmas with my nieces and nephews does not look like this. Maybe you come from a long line of chess-playing angels. But no, I roll my eyes at this ad because it co-opts an integral promise of the Christmas story, the radical peace that Christ offers our world, and waters it down to sell us an indigo blanket? Peace in this ad is just the absence of noise and mess and need. And sure, that's nice. I like a tidy, quiet home sometimes. But that is not the peace Christ's incarnation offers. The Christ who descends into our mess and our need and our chaos with something so much bigger and better than just its removal. What Christ offers us is something that is integral to a Jewish worldview, something that would have been integral to Isaiah, and that's shalom. King and Stuart, too, along with Isaiah, in describing peace as more than just the absence of conflict, but the presence of something better, the presence of justice, they're all describing shalom. When Isaiah calls Jesus the Prince of Peace, he calls him in Hebrew the Sar Shalom. Shalom is such a rich vision of peace. At its core, shalom means something complete or whole, wholeness. 
Also, it can mean soundness, well-being, and as we often translate it, just plain and simple, peace. The Old Testament writers used shalom to describe something complex, something with lots of moving parts, like a wall or a city in a state of completeness, every brick in its right place. Elsewhere, Job, for example, says his tents are in a state of shalom because all his sheep are there, every sheep in its right place. And to bring shalom as an action, a verb, literally means to make complete, to take what was missing and restore it to wholeness. When we reconcile and heal broken relationships individually, systemically, we bring shalom. And in Isaiah 11, that's exactly what Jesus' good rule does. It heals, it restores, it rights wrongs, and it offers humanity a sense of the wholeness we were intended to embody at creation. Um, have you guys heard of Lisa Sharon Harper? I think we've quoted her here before. Uh, I think Lance maybe quoted her last year. She's got this great book called The Very Good Gospel. And in The Very Good Gospel, she unpacks how the heart of shalom is connection. It's, as she says, a kind of kingdom goodness that exists between things, between ourselves and the wider community, ourselves and the rest of creation, between oppressor and oppressed. The subtext is that shalom brings all things into right orientation, right relation with each other. Which begs curiosity, I think. It makes me wonder. Uh, if shalom is for all things, what about the shalom offered for other less talked about or more abstract places? Like, I don't know, the relationship between myself and my inner critic, or between myself and my body, even between myself and the way that I might misuse my own power. Hear this, no space is too complex for God's shalom. And so, in Isaiah 11, Jesus, the, shar, the sar shalom, makes the space between all things whole, complete. He makes it well. He restores the space between oppressor and oppressed and brings his new, good, upside-down order. And from this upside-down rule, a transformed creation springs forth. The trajectory in this narrative matters, I think. First, there's a reordering of human relationships in verses 1 to 5, a reordering of, of power confined to the sphere of humanity, of our interpersonal relationships and interactions. And only after we're made right with each other, only after human interaction is made just, then do we get this vision of total restoration extending to the whole world. Former enemies in the animal kingdom doing life together. A child in charge, the ultimate subversion of what's expected. And from this true peace, the whole earth fills with the knowledge of the Lord, edge to edge, no corner untouched. All made possible by the tiniest sprout in the aftermath of struggle. What a surprising and impossible turn. I recently heard it put that in the hereafter, on the other side of glory, there will be no border between church and world. 
the, the sort of bounded space of corporate worship will lose its edge. And as Isaiah says, elsewhere, all the trees of the field will join us clapping their hands. I think that is such a beautiful picture of shalom. What a vision of what Jesus is offering this world. He's offering us. The renewal of creature, creation, and community. I really like the way that Terry LeBlanc, uh, a Mi'kmaq theologian who teaches here in town sometimes, uh, I like the way he challenges the church with this vision. LeBlanc says that if our vision of what God is doing in the world is too focused on the redemption of people at the expense of the redemption of creation, of all creation, we have a problem. And I probably don't actually need to say this to a church that is deeply invested in joining God in the renewal of all things, as we often say. But LeBlanc's words are good and kind of prophetic in an Isaiah-like way. He pinpoints the Western tradition's emphasis on the human above the rest of creation and says that instead, the entire created order is actually implicated in God's saving peace and God's shalom. Yes, of course, humans have a unique role, but it's a role within what LeBlanc calls multi-layered restoration. So if our picture of salvation doesn't include wolves and lambs and trees, it's too narrow. We're missing out on an invitation to see that God's shalom extends to everything, slowly making it whole, making it well. I think Julian of Norwich, a 14th century mystic, says it best when she says, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Julian was sick to the point of near death when she sensed Christ giving her these words. And this promise means a lot more to me knowing that she didn't receive it in a time of ease. She said it, or heard it, and then later said it in her writings in a time of suffering when Christ's presence felt all the more crucial. Like Julian, Isaiah declares that all shall be well, but not because there's an absence of hard things. All shall be well because within that hard stuff, whether it's a ruined forest or the chaos of our lives or a broken relationship, it's in that, Isaiah suggests, that the spirit hovers, eager and ready to create something new and good, eager to bring the kingdom's true peace, starting in small and surprising ways and working outward from that. Because God loves God's creation. And as Isaiah tells us, the smallest signs of life reveals how God is deeply invested in this world. Not abandoning it to absence, but sustaining it with surprising, unexpected presence. As Lance said last week, we might always be waiting. Always waiting for the fullness of this shalom. The full presence of true peace that Isaiah depicts. But amidst our waiting, God will always be working and always inviting. It's just often in such low-down ways that we can easily miss it, especially if we're looking in the high places, forgetting to be curious about small things. The beauty of the age we're in, the beauty and sometimes the struggle of the age we're in, this threshold of advents where Christ has come historically, has come into our hearts and lives, and will come again. 
is that this vision of right relations is already in our midst in part. All around us, maybe, little sprouts eager to bring God's true peace to all relations. But of course, because this age is a threshold, all around us, small death persists. I need you to know that I am not trying to coerce Isaiah's text to fit our circumstances as a church faced with sad news about our lead pastor's departure. Yes, that is definitely a small death of sorts, absolutely. But I want you to know that this hasn't been a sermon about that. And yet, of course, Isaiah's vision speaks peace to the sadness we likely feel. This text is certainly a balm to me as I grieve this news because it reminds me who God is, how invested in us God is, especially in times of struggle, disappointment, or loss. Isaiah's vision, born in struggle, reminds us that our longing for new life, for all things made right, is all the more vital precisely when life fails to bring ease. This week as I spent time in Isaiah, I had John chapter 6 rattling around in my brain for some reason. Here towards the end of John 6, Jesus is teaching the crowds. And in his teaching, he reveals some things that would be hard for first-century Jewish followers to swallow. Hard news that challenges historical expectation. News that challenges their sense of control over things like what's supposed to happen. In John 6, Jesus is making big claims about his person. Big hints that he is the Messiah, the one the prophets spoke of. And the crowds grumble. They say things like, isn't this Joseph? Okay, they probably weren't curmudgeons like that. <laughs> um, isn't this Joseph's son? The Messiah is supposed to be royalty. No, this doesn't line up with my permission or my picture of how things are supposed to unfold. Sorry. And many walk away. After the crowds leave, Jesus and his 12 disciples, they kind of huddle up, or at least that's how I picture it. And the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, they say, Jesus, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And Jesus asks them, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter pipes up. Beautiful, chaotic Peter. Peter who doubts and denies and feels things deeply. But also Peter, who, the rock, the one on whom Christ's church is built. Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. When I read Isaiah's vision, I feel a bit like Peter. I long for the outpouring of shalom it offers. I long for, for that real peace in our lives and our neighborhoods and our world, all of which can feel so bleak. And I don't want to go anywhere else but to the one who promises this, the one who, amidst life's small deaths, amidst its small grief, promises something surprising and good, something that subverts expectations and maybe seems impossible. So for us, waiting in Advent for any number of things, we too can embody Peter's question. Lord, in our waiting, where else are we going? It's you. You hold the words. You hold the shalom. You hold the true peace we desperately need. And thanks be to God that you start in the darkness, 
in the perceived lack, in the cut-off tree trunk, in the devastation. I don't know what your personal encounter with these words of Isaiah has been today, but I believe that, as in Isaiah, so it is now. The Spirit hovers, creating something good in our midst, something surprising, and in, in this creation, the Spirit invites us to participate in the path of true peace. Maybe we can't see the sprout yet, maybe it's still working its little green arms up to the surface, and that's why we wait hoping to glimpse how God might bring the presence of his true peace into our lives and our community and our world. To every corner, every edge, every complex square inch of it. And we say, come Lord Jesus. <laughs>